0: This a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is the show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. This is, I just love this time of year. Here we are um, in Advent and uh, making our way steadily towards the Christmas feast, and even in this time where things are a little bit more sparse, um, we have the opportunity to focus in on what really matters this Christmas season. So here we are, we're living out this Advent. We're, we're looking around and we're asking ourselves the question. We're saying all is not right with the world. Things are most definitely wrong. And we, we can look at any number of things this year and say, you know what? Things are messed up. But this is what Christmas answers, the incarnation that God becomes man to reconcile us to the Father. All of this, all of the the wrongness of the world, all of the things that are not quite right, these are the things that Christ has come to set right. This is the promise of Christmas, that, that Christ, God, who becomes man, Emmanuel, with us, God with us, has come again, to restore all things to himself, to restore all things to God the Father, to reconcile us and, uh, and to set things right. So uh, th- what, I, what I talked about earlier in the, uh, in the season was to picture that thing, ask that question, what is it? What is the thing that I'm identifying as being wrong with the world? It can be a big thing or it could be something that's just wrong in your specific life. Some something in your sphere of influence, something in your universe and your world. And to invite Christ, God with us, Emmanuel, to make himself manifest to that wrongness in your life this Advent and Christmas season. And to take this time to evaluate and to recognize what's wrong so that when Christ comes, we can recognize him. That's the big thing. Can we recognize God when He comes to be with us, so for instance, um, <clears throat> lately my uh, my oldest son he's nearly a teenager and it and it shows and it's what you would expect right there's nothing out of the ordinary, um, but he is having trouble identifying what it is he's really feeling and so I've encouraged him to ask himself the question why whenever he has a big emotional response. Uh, and this is something that all of us can and should do. Um, why? Why did I just have this response that that was a very big response? And listen, if you are uh, engaged or know someone who's getting engaged or, or someone who's on their way to get married, this is is like tip number one. When they say, hey, write down a tip for us, this is the one right here. When you have a big emotional I- experience, ask yourself the question, why? And Take a moment and examine it and answer honestly. This is important. And and just internally, before you say anything out loud, ask yourself the question why, and then answer honestly. Now, when you have expressed to yourself, this is why I had that big emotional response, ask yourself the question why again, (laughs) and then examine it and look and listen and answer honestly. Honestly. And so now, as you have had the big emotion, you've asked yourself, well, why did I just have that emotion? And then you answer, well, because this, that, and the other. And then you ask yourself, well, why is this, that, and the other important? And then you answer honestly. And you say, well, this, that, and the other is important because uh, here, yon, and over there, um, this was what was instilled in me. And then you ask yourself the question why again. Three times you ask why, and you dig down deep In and excavate this emotion to where you can kind of see it from all sides and say, oh, well, the thing that I was responding to is not really the thing at all, right? The thing that I was responding to reminded me of this other thing, which reminded me of that other thing, which really gets to the heart of why this is important to me and where the emotion that's attached to this is coming from. And so as we are, listen, we're still in the midst of this lockdown where I am. We're still in the midst of the quarantine and the pandemic and emotions are fried and everyone is a little bit on edge. And as we have these emotions to begin to ask ourselves the questions why. As we recognize that things are not right with the world to begin to ask ourselves the question why is this thing, this wrongness in my in my orbit? Why is this the thing that's bothering me? In Asking that question to get to the core heart of the matter and then inviting God to become God with us in that place, in the true thing that really matters rather than the thing that got us riled up. So here we are living out this difficult year. Started out as a difficult Lent, extended into a difficult Easter Maintained its way through a difficult, ordinary time, and here we are still waiting for the promised redemption, and recognizing that that promised redemption um, is not going to look maybe the way that we expected it to. Uh, We we've had this conversation as well. Who knows when life will get fully back to normal? But in the meantime. In the meantime, we can come to, to invite Christ into this new reality and then also ask God where he is and what he wants to do in this moment. This, this is the moment right here that God has placed us in. This is the one that we have been given. So now what do we do with it? We, we could rail against it, but it wouldn't necessarily accomplish anything, right? We could complain and, and write letters and do whatever else we need to do. But here is where we find ourselves. And so we say, God, where are you in this? Come and meet me here. Let me see your perspective and help me to, uh, to respond in the way that you want me to respond. Help me to find you and to recognize you and to walk with you in the midst of the unexpected realities. And we aren't the first ones to have to do this. We have an example that's been put out before us. And so this is a great place to start our conversation about this new year. Uh, I'm not talking about the new liturgical year that we just passed. I'm not talking about the new year that's coming up uh, starting in January. No, no, we have a new year that started at at an odd time. On the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, uh, Pope Francis announced a new year. We have the year where you get a focus and we've we've had the year of faith and we've had the year of the Holy Spirit and we've we've had all of these big years. Now we have the year of Saint Joseph a- and it's taken a lot of people by surprise. It took me a little bit about uh, by surprise as we're going to be focusing this year on what that what Saint. Joseph can teach us as a church and as individuals, and I have to say I'm here for it. And also here for it is Joe Heshmeyer. Thanks for joining us on the show today. I'm very happy to be here for it in both senses. Joe is an instructor at the Holy Family School of Faith. You can find out more information about them by going to schooloffaith.com. He blogs over at shamelesspopery.com. Uh, that's where I found uh, today's information, where he talked a little bit about the the new letter that Pope Francis put out and kind of gave us his own thoughts. And that's gonna be kind of our jumping off point uh, for today's discussion. We've had Joe on the show. I counted Joe. It's been 17 times we've had you here. You have been on more than any other person other than myself uh, on the show. And I look back through the years, we've had you here beginning in 2017 um, at at each Christmas season. You've been on the show before that, but uh, starting in 2017, you were here for Christmas Eve and then the next year, the day before that, and then we got you in for Advent a couple of times and so this was too good of a, a, a tradition to pass up, had to have you back on. And this seemed like the perfect opportunity because um, we have this opportunity to look at and examine the life of St. Joseph and to say, okay, what is it? What is it that we can, as a people, he's the, the patron of the church, what is it that we can learn from him and how can we better model our lives after his example of faith, this is a, um, just a huge question and one that I think uh, deserves a little bit of our attention, uh, Joe. I'm I'm really intrigued by this because Saint Joseph is one of those characters we have several in the Bible who were like this, who we we hear about and we see their faith and their obedience, but nothing that they have said has been recorded. Uh, we get, yeah, we you know we get this also with, um, to some extent, with Noah, another covenant keeper, uh, who we see a lot of his action and that he's a man of action. Um, but really, I think Noah had like one one line, and he's got more than the foster father of Jesus, St. Joseph, has, uh, who, who has nothing that he has said recorded. Um, so I'm, I'm intrigued about this, and all the introverts in the world are like, St. Joe's my man. Um, let's talk about who... St. Joseph is uh, as, a, as a person in scripture and also to the church.
1: Yeah. Well, so there's one word we know of St. Joseph saying only indirectly. We don't have him quoted directly. But when the angel appears to Joseph in the dream, uh, Joseph is told you shall call his name Jesus mm. about the child to be born. So the one word we know he must have said at some point is the name Jesus. And there's something really beautiful about that, that, you know it's pretty cool to have a silent saint but it's even cooler to have a saint whose only word is jesus
0: yeah
1: um like there's just something really profound and powerful about that kind of a, a christocentric uh, orientation of the saint meaning um the saints have referred lives in some sense that mm-hmm. to know the saint is to know something about god and so this is, uh, Mark Shea talks about this in his trilogy on Mary, that Mary is a referred life. Like all the debates about Mary are really debates about Jesus. Like when there's the whole Nestorian debate about whether we say uh, mother of God or mother of Christ, that's not really a debate about Mary. I mean, it is, but it's at a a deeper level, a debate about how we understand Jesus Christ. Likewise, St. Joseph, we have so little information in one sense that it, it is perfectly a referred life. It's a real life that only points to Jesus um, and all the grappling and all of the action and all the struggles and all of those things that he does are manifestations of what it looks like to try to follow God and, and in a strange way uh, to try to protect Jesus Christ, who, you know, who this foster son of, of whom Joseph is simultaneously the follower and, and the foster father. Uh, that's a profound like that's a profound uh relationship that he has and one that for centuries went basically overlooked like the first church to saint joseph doesn't happen uh until like 1300 years in hmm. and he's all but ignored uh, in antiquity except at like a popular level meaning like theologians mostly just kind of ignored him and then there were just like stories about him and the stories about him were you know, contradictory, legendary, and not, not very reliable. So it was easy to kind of push Joseph to the wayside. But in the second millennium of the life of the church, there was a real uh, change of Joseph's fortunes in a certain way, like uh, a real recognition and maybe rediscovery of Joseph and kind of what he has to offer to the church. And that really starts in, uh, uh, again, like it starts around 1300. It gets going by like say 15, 1600. Um, but we really see in the last 150 years, and and I mean that almost to the day, 150 years, uh, this especially papal emphasis on Saint Joseph. Where now he is the second most pointed to saint after the Virgin Mary, yeah. which is incredible. I mean, to go from from being basically
0: forgotten to history to that kind of status is is quite the 180. You know, I I, I look at um what we know about St. Joseph and you, you mentioned from antiquity, you, you look into the commentaries of the church fathers as they're talking about, uh, talking about him mainly in reference, uh, to the biblical passages and to his relationship to Mary. And there's, there's a whole lot of conjecture and speculation. Some people say, well, uh, he was afraid to take Mary as his wife because um, because he did believe that she had been unfaithful. And then you have other people who say, well, no, this is that numinous fear that you talked about here on the show before of recognizing that this must be a, a divine thing and not feeling worthy. And so there's been this, this kind of um, uncertainty. I think the same uncertainty that many people who come and read the scriptures have of uh, maybe putting ourselves and viewing Joseph's actions through ourselves rather than looking to Joseph as an example for how we ought to pattern our lives. Um, where 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 do you fall on this? Where, what's your take on what St. Joseph has to offer us as, as Christians seeking to follow after God?
1: That's a great question.
0: Um, I think there's several dimensions. So, I mean, on the one hand,
1: there is this role of like, discipleship of course mm-hmm. you know he's called the just man and we see that in his life and in his actions that he's willing to do bold things he's willing to uh, kind of live in this bold way but there's and of course you know he's a model for priests, benedict the held him up as a model for priest he's a model for fathers in an obvious way um but i think maybe the the dimension worth talking about right now is this idea uh, of kind of creative courage. This is something that Pope Francis talks about in the document that he, he wrote about Joseph. Uh, the apostolic letter is called Patris Corte, uh, like the heart of a father. and uh, Or the mercy of a father. Maybe I'm getting my Latin wrong. Um, he talks about this uh, creative courage when he says that when they go into Egypt, mm-hmm. uh, the gospel doesn't tell us how long they remained there. But there are certain things that still need to happen. They need to, you know, eat. They need to find a home. Uh, he's got to work. And the angel doesn't give him a, a guide. He doesn't say here's here's where he tells him to leave the country. And I think he tells him to go to Egypt, but he doesn't tell him where to go in Egypt. Now, at the time, Alexandria would have been the obvious choice because it's the largest city uh, outside of, of Israel. In terms of Jewish populations, there's a a very large and very ancient, uh, well, you know, 300 years old by that point, kind of Jewish city there or or Jewish population there, like the community there was well established, there's synagogues and everything else. So presumably they got up in the middle of the night and just left and went there, but they don't know how long they're going for which makes something like packing all but impossible. Uh, Now, fortunately for them, they'd been traveling to go uh, have the census done. But they probably hadn't packed enough to stay for years anywhere. They probably had been planning on uh, going, registering, and returning. Well, now they're they're going to be leaving and, and never coming back. We don't know uh, from Matthew's account even whether they're leaving from Bethlehem or Nazareth. So there's some speculation even in terms of are they still in, in transit from that or have they returned and are they home among all their stuff. Whatever the case, uh, there is this strong sense that yeah, they're just, they're not sure when they're going to be coming back. They're leaving everyone and everything that they know. Uh, and, and they're leaving in the middle of the night. So the the reason this is so important is because I think there are two traps we can fall into. On the one hand, we can easily fall into this trap of like, I'm acting just on my own because I've got a gut sense about what I should do. And maybe I'd check in with God and say, hey, what do you think of that thing I did, God? Like after the fact. Um, but the other way is a sort of inactivity where I sit on my hands and wait for divine revelation. Mm -hmm. And creative courage is what Pope Francis describes as the alternative to those two extremes, where you uh, follow the will of God, you are listening to and waiting on the will of God, but you're waiting even amidst action. You're listening for God even while you're going out and, and doing the things you think you're supposed to do and the the maddening part of this is that you often don't know if you're doing the right thing
0: mm-hmm.
1: and in this way it's a perfect model for fathers, right?
0: <laughs> right <laughs> You know I, I want to point to something here um that that I think gets overlooked a lot of times, uh, and it, it comes to this idea of of how is how is he making these decisions you know he he first of all, he resolves very quickly. Uh, based on a dream to take Mary as his wife second he resolves very quickly and acts very quickly on a dream uh, to to go into exile uh, to become a refugee and to leave his home and for for the safety of his wife and his child um, this trust and and uh, maybe faith in these dreams uh, comes has to come from a point of knowing the voice of God, of being in a relationship and, and having God having proved himself over time that, you know, Hey, I, this is how I interact with God for me, for Joseph, I'm receiving the word of God and dreams. And it's been proven to me over and over again, that I can trust those. Therefore now when it really matters, um, I can, I can make these snap decisions for the for the sake of my wife and child, where I think a lot of times you and I or, or anyone else, we want to have the same confidence that St. Joseph had in the fact that he heard the voice of God without taking the time to develop uh, and grow in that virtue and grow in that relationship to where we could actually recognize and say, this isn't just my God. This is the voice of God and I need to act on it.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, yesterday I was um, doing the School of Faith Rosary And it was the one led by John Leyendecker, and he was talking about the Glorious Mysteries. And one of the things he says um, on the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles is that people will say that they want that kind of faith. And he said, but look at what led up to it. Like there's nine days of them remaining in prayer. And if I can't spend nine minutes with God, like if you want faith like the apostles, or we could say faith like St. Joseph, you have to live like that. Like you have to do the kind of thing they're doing. In the same way that, I mean, it's true of anything else. Like you want to be a concert pianist, but you don't want to do piano practice. It's not going to go very well. Right. Like all these things take kind of putting in the work. Now, I can't promise that if you just remain faithful to God, you'll get angelic revelations. It hasn't <laughs> happened to me yet. Uh, but at least you're creating the sort of disposition of soul that becomes more, more of what a true disciple looks like. And I think that's an important thing to bear in mind, that they are models of, of what it looks like. So even though we don't have a detailed description of the prayer life of Joseph, we know this is something that he's wrestling with and sleeping on and not seemingly worrying too much about it, even though it's the biggest decision. What I mean by that is he doesn't seem to be losing sleep over this, even as he's grappling with what to do. Right. Uh, that by itself is actually kind of telling. Like that, but the fact that the angel can appear to him in a dream, the fact that he's asleep and dreaming, right, uh, shows to a, a certain kind of peace of soul that the man has, uh, that is something we should want to imitate. And, and and that kind of receptivity to God, like you said, that's the fruit of a lot of stuff. In the same way, that if, if you watch a player uh, playing a sport, you know. Like, you might just be seeing them today, but you know mm-hmm. there are years worth of, of practice and hard work and everything that went into them making it look as effortless as they do. The same is true here with Joseph.
0: I want to push back on something you said there. You said, you yeah. know, uh, I'm uh, not saying that you will get angelic visions because, you know, I haven't yet. And yet the scripture talks about many, uh, many of us in doing the right thing have entertained angels unaware. Uh, there could be, out of this prayer life, an intuition or a gut and a choice that we make that we don't necessarily see the fruit of or think it's any big deal. But we're looking at this story of St. Joseph through the eyes of salvation history on the other side of the cross, and we can recognize that decision, that quick action, that recognizing the voice of the Holy Spirit and acting on it, that was a linchpin and a turning point. And we don't have that perspective on those gut feelings and those intuitions and those things that we have in prayer if we've developed that prayer life. We don't have this, hey, we're looking at this 2,000 years from now and we see the end result. We just have to be, and, and, and neither did Joseph, we just have to be faithful in the moment to the voice of God as we've come to recognize that voice through continual and constant prayer.
1: Yeah, I think that's right on. And I think it's a really important thing to remember is that a lot of things look obvious in hindsight. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to use another sports analogy. There are a lot (laughs) of like uh, trick plays you'll see in sports where someone does something kind of bold and risky and really unusual. This is everything from like uh, the Reykjavik uh, chess world championship with Bobby Fischer to like, Uh, The kind of NFL plays that Andy Reid calls like these kind of but it's these things that like they're unconventional, they're bold, they're daring. And when they work, we're like, this is so brilliant. But it's worth remembering, like, if that didn't work, that's not what you would be saying at all. Yeah. And so the person who's experiencing it in the moment isn't saying, oh, this is so brilliant. This is sure to work. The person who's doing it in the moment has to have like a sort of confidence and boldness to go where they don't really know what happens next. A creative and, courage. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is creative courage. Now, I want to make a connection here, too, because uh, one of the famous phrases is, go to Joseph.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and this phrase is often found in kind of spiritual devotion to Joseph. Uh, Pope Francis quotes it. It's often on, uh, like, statues to Joseph, etc. But the line doesn't—it is from Scripture— But it's not originally about St. Joseph. It's about the Patriarch Joseph in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And I think it's telling because the two men share a lot more than just a name. Like they're both dreamers. They both have these visions from God in dreams that they take seriously and they act on and they kind of unpack. Uh, And that tells you something about them already. Both of them, of course, have this journey into Egypt. Both of them experienced a lot of suffering, even from people they should be able to rely on. You know, Joseph being betrayed by his family, uh, St. Joseph being betrayed by his country. Like those kind of things. uh, They have anyway, they have a lot of parallels. But one of the parallels they have is that both of them are part of a plan of salvation that they don't get to live to see. Hmm. Like Joseph brings the people down into Egypt from which uh, the Exodus will launch. At the point of his death, all he knows is God promised the Promised Land to his grandfather, uh, yeah. great grandfather, uh, and and yet here he is dying in Egypt. Yeah. And so he makes this promise that like they'll bring his bones back to the Promised Land. Um, that sort of thing. Like he dies basically with something unfulfilled. He dies with something unrealized. With the patient and kind of hopeful expectation that God will make good on it even after he's gone. And so when we talk about like sometimes you plant a seed and you don't know what it's going to do, that's an easy message when it's like in a few days you'll find out if this worked or not. <laughs> right. um, but when you're saying like you're going to plant a seed and you're going to die without knowing whether you were a success or failure, that is the boldness in faith. Mm -hmm. And so both of them are successes. Both of them succeed because they can act in faith without even the assurance that they ever did anything right. They don't know if they ran the race in vain by the time that they die. And it's something really uh, radical and I think in some ways scary to say, "Okay, yeah, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do the thing you're asking me to do without ever knowing if
0: this succeeded, it's not in some way scary. It's like in every way scary, but but it requires, I think, us to to have a bit of confidence about who God is. And again, that bringing it back to that idea, this comes from uh, from an active prayer life and an active intimate relationship with God. Because if you don't know that you can trust God, uh, if you don't know that that He is faithful beyond faithful beyond faithful then that's the kind of step that is a, a bridge too far, right? It's only from this confidence that God is who he says that he is that we can make those kinds of big steps. And that's what we're called to as we are emulating and learning from St. Joseph in our own lives here in this year of St. Joseph. There is much more to this conversation as we break this open a little bit more with Joe Heschmeier. He's an instructor at the Holy Family School of Faith. And blogs over at shamelesspopery.com Don't go anywhere, because there's a lot of great discussion left. Right after this, you're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. Putnam. The walls where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL, and there's no better way to explore the implications of faith on daily life than to look at the life of Saint Joseph. Saint Joseph, for whom we don't see a whole lot except for the effects of faith on his daily life. We see them, the big, huge changes that he made to his daily life because of his faith that the dreams he was having were true and that those dreams were, were part of the faith because they were pertaining to these prophecies of the Messiah that he believed that this was the moment. So he was going to be obedient to them. And we see these big, massive changes of, of location, of whole life direction, of uh, figuring out what life was going to be like um, from St. Joseph. To explore this a little bit today, we're talking with Joe Heschmeyer. He's uh, an instructor at the Holy Family School of Faith. Blogs over at shamelesspopery.com, has uh, the the Catholic podcast, cathpod.com. Joe, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. So I'm looking at this, and we talked earlier that church fathers kind of really disagree on how St. Joseph thought. Uh, about Mary as he was mm-hmm. coming into this place. And, and so I have, I'm, I'm going to ask a couple of questions because there's also some thoughts that maybe, um, he was, yeah. And we see this from the, the proto of James. We have, um, where in that, in that text, St. Joseph was purported to be an older man who was a widow who had sons before. And this is where we get the, the brothers of Jesus. According to this, um, what is it, is it, pseudepigrapha, is it? Um, yeah, it's
1: pseudepigraphical, yeah, because so, it's, it's not actually by James. So
0: we, have, Although it purports to be, it's really from like the 2nd century. So we have at least these thoughts about who St. Joseph was, but then there are other people who say, well, uh, St. Joseph was a young man who fell in love with a young woman, and then it just so happened that that wasn't going to be how it was going to be. Lots of different ways. There's perspectives in both ways that make sense. I don't know that the church has specifically spoken on that on who Joseph was. Um, what, what what's your take on on this 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 person who is obeying the will of God uh, despite what he anticipated his life looking like? Yeah. So, I guess just to speak a little bit to young Joseph versus old Joseph. Um,
1: Fulton Sheen has a really good thing, Fulton Sheen is very much in the young Joseph camp. And his point is that there's actually something pretty insulting about the assumption in the second century that he must have been old to have been chased. Uh, that is kind of a rejection of the idea that a young person can be chased, especially a young man can be chased. Like mm-hmm. the idea was only sure, a young woman can, can keep her virginity, but a young man, like there's no way he can, he can live chastely. And so the underlying assumptions for a lot of the early old Joseph kind of view are bad. That doesn't mean he's not old. Right. I mean, and there are other assumptions too, but that one in particular should be called out and said, like, no, nah, that's kind of just uh, rejecting the idea of his virtue. Uh, Jerome, St. Jerome, when he's writing against Helvidius, argues that uh, Joseph is young, that he is virginal, that he is chaste, that, that he is all these things that... Uh, I think modern believers have trouble believing a young guy can be. Yeah. Um, and so he pushed really hard for that. Young Joseph was the accepted norm in the West, like the accepted view in the West. And the Protoevangelium of James was actually condemned, uh, and you know, by multiple popes, actually, not just for that, but it, like it was it was rejected as like a, a place to look for an accurate view. So I think in, in light of all of that. On, on the particular question of young versus old, I go with young, but it's true that the church has never dogmatically declared one way or the mm-hmm. other. Um, and then there's a, the deeper problem of what do we make of these so-called brothers of Jesus, right? Cause that's the other reason people assume that Joseph was older is that there are these people called brothers of Jesus. But when you read the new Testament, uh, multiple of the so-called brothers of Jesus, like James and Joseph's have other parents. Yeah. So we're, we're clearly using brother and not the literal immediate sense we well, would in English.
0: You've written a, a great post about this that I'm going to link to on our social media because you kind of break everything down and and who you see these people to be. And I think it's also important, just in in brief passing, since we did bring it up, to mention that Aramaic, which is the language that, that Matthew would have been written in, uh, because Matthew, or, 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 or at least that Matthew, if he didn't write in that, was at least thinking in that language, uh, doesn't really have a construct for cousin. It only has a construct for close male relative, which is what we get brother from. Uh, and so even though we have the extant texts in Greek. You're still dealing with someone who's going to be speaking in a second language as he's writing that, uh, as, as Matthew is most definitely Aramaic. So th- th- there's even linguistic reasons that that might be the case over and above uh, other considerations.
1: Right. Like Abraham and Lot are described as brothers in Genesis, even though we know them to be uncle and nephew. That's not a mistake. That's just like a, a loose way of using like in the same way that they say father for anyone going back to Abraham mm-hmm. um, or or son for any descendant into perpetuity. Brother is is basically any near-ish male relative.
0: This is completely off topic and I, I super apologize. But it remind, reminds me of the movie uh, that was out recently. I think it's Arrival and it's talking about how language forms the way we think and these Aliens thought in circular language and had circular language. And when she learned that language, she was able to then somehow transcend the laws of space and time. You know, fun movie on its own right, but just this idea that language shapes the way that we view and interact with the world. And we have to recognize that the Bible was written for us, but not to us. And the language gap, even in our translations, it's still there.
1: Yeah, that is an important thing. So, I really want to go really nerdy on uh, kind of the role of language, and I was a communications minor, you know. So, like,
0: let's let's save that for the Patreon segment. We'll we'll (laughs) totally geek out on it, and perfect. uh, Yeah, if you want to geek out on language, come and be a patron.
1: I would just say, like, God creates the world through language. So this this role of the creative dimension of language isn't just some weird academic theory. There's something deeply Christian about that idea. Like Adam's first job is naming mm-hmm. because it shapes how we, how we relate and how we understand.
0: Yeah. We're talking today with Joe Heschmeyer talking about the year of St. Joseph. That's just now been declared by Pope Francis. Um, so you saw this come out. You, you jumped on it pretty quick, put a blog post up about it. You had your eyes attuned for anything. St. Joseph. I, I wonder why. Um <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about your impressions as a father, looking at this beautiful letter that Pope Francis has put out, and and what understandings or, or aha moments did you gain from Pope Francis's thoughts about St. Joseph? And as a new father, what have you learned in your own practice of fatherhood from St. Joseph?
1: Yeah, so I already liked St. Joseph as a father. There's a great line Origin actually has about how Joseph knows that Jesus is superior to him, even as Jesus is submitting to him. Mm -hmm. Um, And that because of that, he's able to command with respect and moderation. Like this idea of fatherhood, that like being the father doesn't mean you're the holiest or smartest or most qualified person. And that Joseph is actually the perfect model of this since he is the least holy, least qualified person in the holy family. That's not a knock on Joseph. (laughs) Like that's just a recognition that his wife— is the Immaculate Conception, and his son is the second person of the Trinity. Like, it's, a, you know, he's above average, but his family is so far above average that he doesn't have a chance.
0: This this seems like meme-worthy. Like, you know, <laughs> you, 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 you were top of your class, top of your holiness class, your whole growing up, but the, still the lowest holy person in your family.
1: Exactly, exactly. So because of that, that obviously impacts what it is for him to be a father. Like Luke 2 tells us that Jesus submits to him. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty profound. And Mary does too in a different way, obviously. But like she's able to follow him into Egypt uh, based on a dream he had that she didn't even get to experience. Like she can listen to the angel and follow the angel in her annunciation. But when there's this annunciation of sorts to Joseph, Mm -hmm. she's got to just get up and go and trust that he also received an angel, even though it wasn't just like, oh, we were talking about angels and then you had a dream about an angel. It'd be easy <laughs> to just kind of write it off. It's like, yeah, you, know, you wanted an annunciation. This is dream fulfillment, you know, all of that stuff. Yeah. Like, so there's a, an incredible act of faithfulness and fidelity Mary's showing in following Joseph in his imperfection. So Joseph, as this guy who's trying his best and doesn't know what he's doing uh, there's something really appealing about that as a as a father
0: well, and let's just um, let's just look at how how good God is in the way that he approaches us because he approaches us in a way that we can receive, and we see this throughout his his theophanies in in scripture is that they're they're never the same there's almost a little c s Lewis you never get to Narnia the same way twice kind of vibe to this where um where Mary receives not um the appearance of an angel in a dream, but the actual presence and manifestation of an angel before her, Joseph receives in a dream in a different way. And yet both of them are hearing the voice of God in a very particular and precise way.
1: Yeah. And and they're both giving different bits of information. Mm-hmm. Um, Mary's given a little bit of the broad view, but not much. Mm-hmm. And Joseph's are are mostly, as almost like GPS directions. When your phone just says, like, turn here. And then, like, you're like, I don't know how long I'm on the road for. Uh, I hope I turned the right way. And then, like, in a little bit it says, okay, turn here. Like, they, like, Joseph gets three angelic visitations. And they tell him just as much as he needs to know. Yeah. Um, and, and nothing more, really. And so that leads to the part that I think... Pope Francis does such a great job with. I, I kind of alluded to this earlier with creative courage, but like he's called to live that. But in the additionally, like on top of that, uh, as he's trying to figure out all, all the things to do when he's not being given direct messages by angels, which is overwhelmingly the norm, you know, the, to not be getting them. Um, he also knows that his life isn't about him. And that it's not just about making a name for himself, but rather that he's helping to kind of set his child up to do great things. And Pope Francis says this, he says, being a father entails introducing children to life and reality, not holding them back, being overprotective or possessive, but rather making them capable of deciding for themselves, enjoying freedom and exploring new possibilities. And then he goes on to say, every child is the bearer of the unique mystery that can only be brought to light with the help of a father who respects that child's freedom. A father who realizes that he is most a father and educator at the point when he becomes useless, when he sees that his child has become independent and can walk the paths of life unaccompanied, when he becomes like Joseph, who always knew that his child was not his own, but had merely been entrusted to his care. I think that is a really profound vision of fatherhood, um, that it's really easy to view your kids as just people to be molded in your own image and likeness. It's really easy to make your kids kind of manifestations of everything you didn't have and wished you'd had growing up. Uh, it's really easy to be overprotective or, you know, possessive to try to keep them away from all the harm and danger and and treat them in that way to basically bury the talent that is your child because you don't want them to get hurt. That's a really understandable impulse. And I think every parent has in some way felt it. Mm -hmm. But uh, Pope Francis' point is you got to resist that to a certain extent. Because like your job is not uh, to protect your kid most fundamentally. Your job is to empower your kid so that when you're not there to protect them, they can still make good decisions. They can still do the right thing. That's a much harder task. Well, because that means that, like, you you allow them to experience some kind of hardship sometimes.
0: And, you know, we see this with college students all the time who have, who have gone through a life of protection uh, and restriction, all of a sudden throwing all caution to the wind uh, because th- this is the first freedom they've tasted. And on the other side, you see people who have gone their whole life without restraint continuing to live that lack of restraint. And so finding that balance, uh, man— that it's it's tricky and it requires, I think as Saint Joseph shows us, it requires uh, an active prayer life and an active connection uh, to the voice of God and a really strong sense of discernment to be able to to navigate that that balance in those waters.
1: yeah, and you know what I think this is kind of a sidebar is also true of spiritual fathers mm-hmm. and true of the life of the church more broadly. So, like, uh, not to get us into too dicey of waters, but in the 20th century, you watch these major changes that happen in the aftermath of Vatican II. Before Vatican II, you have a lot of rules that protected people from bad things, but Mm -hmm. didn't necessarily form them into the kind of virtuous people to actually choose the right thing. And how do we know that? Well, as soon as the rules became optional, everyone chose no more rules, no more, you know. And once you don't have to do meat on Friday, no one wants to do meat on Friday. Yeah. And, or no one wants to abstain from meat on Friday. That kind of thing points to the fact the rule wasn't doing what it was meant to be doing. Mm-hmm. Like it was keeping them from the that moment of getting into trouble or that moment from doing the wrong thing. But it wasn't actually forming them to be the kind of people they're meant to be. Yeah. And I don't think the solution is like totally libertinism. <laughs> but I think the solution is to like, form people to embrace and experience freedom to empower rather than just to protect like there is uh it's it's so much harder to do that you know but that's that's what joseph kind of models and why does he model that because he can't forget that this isn't his child in the deepest sense like he is a father to god's child Mm -hmm. and as a result he uh, has to kind of check any kind of egoism or selfishness or any of the ways where like you know he might say, well, I want him to turn out just like me. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful that Jesus becomes a carpenter like his father. Yeah. Uh, but I think he also knows very early on that he's not just going to become a carpenter and live a, a life where he doesn't say any words.
0: Yeah, yeah. We're talking today with Joe Hashmeyer about this new year of St. Joseph. We've got a long time to contemplate on the life of St. Joseph to to see and to ask and to discern what St. Joseph has to teach us individually and as a church. We have a whole year. Let's make the most of it. Uh, Thanks, Joe, for taking the time to be with us today. My pleasure. If you missed any part of my discussion with Joe or you want to share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And as we promised, there is a whole extra segment where we geek out on linguistics and language and and different conceptions of language and how it operates. Uh, It's a fascinating discussion. I had a blast uh, with that little extra segment. And it's available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. Uh, Our Patreon support community is just fantastic. And you can be a part of it by going to OutsideTheWalls.com. Clicking that Patreon link in the top right-hand corner of the page, getting extra segments each and every week as we delve into our topics or tangents a little bit more deeply. Uh, go there's some some free ep- free extra segments, free episodes over there that you can take a listen to and decide if that's something that you want to be a part of, to be a part of the community that keeps us on the air. Well, let's go ahead now and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from Church history. <phone rings> That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up, one of my favorite sounds. You can get your Verbum Library by going to verbum.com, try it out for free for 30 days, and then see which library fits you the best. Uh, You know, some people have uh, multiple shelves. I've got when we moved, I think we had like 36 boxes, 39 boxes of books, Uh, and they were heavy. They're hard to move. Uh, With my Verbum library, I I don't have to pack up those books, and that's a good thing because I have thousands of books in my Verbum library. Uh, You can get whichever size bookshelf you want uh, by going to verbum.com. Today's reading from uh, from scripture comes from the response real psalm from yesterday, and it just feels right as we talk about Saint Joseph to get um, to get a picture of him in some ways of the just man, right? Uh, from the Psalms. Those who follow you, Lord, will have the light of life. Blessed the man who follows not the counsel of the wicked, nor walks in the way of sinners. "'nor sits in the company of the insolent, "'but delights in the law of the Lord "'and meditates on his law day and night. "'Those who follow you, Lord, "'will have the light of life. "'He is like a tree planted near running water "'that yields its fruit in due season "'and whose leaves never fade. "'Whatever he does prospers.'" Those who follow you, Lord, will have the light of life. Not so the wicked, not so. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. For the Lord watches over the way of the just, but the way of the wicked vanishes. Those who follow you, Lord, will have the light of life. That reading comes from Psalm 1, and this was one growing up, um, that we as a family memorized. That, uh, so I hear those words and I think about sitting in the front room on the, on the pastel couches um, with the wrought iron railing around the edge of the room because we had a little step down. Uh, and I, I, I imagine sitting there uh, in the mornings, we, we read through the Psalms uh, and the Proverbs every month and memorizing this and having this picture of, of the just man. And I never really felt like I identified with him. We've talked about that before, that Psalm 50, that, that Isaiah 55, rather, was kind of a watershed moment for me. But here, this, this promise that God would watch over the way of the just, even though I, I didn't feel like it described me very well, it was something that I really wanted for myself. I wanted to have... Uh, the, the promises that were made to the just, the promises that were made to the righteous, were very enticing to me. And these words of scripture, these promises, even though that we feel that they're far off sometimes, these promises are meant for us. And the witness of the saints helps us to see that we too, fallen though we are, um, incomplete though we are, we can be made perfect by Christ by His redeeming work. We can. Find our way into the way of the just. And that's our invitation here, and St. Joseph is leading the way and beckoning us and inviting us. And our reading from Church History today comes from The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. And uh, there are lots of different options we could have read from today, but this one just uh, really, I think, sums up who Joseph was, and it's an invitation for us to be the same. Do not care much with who is with you and who is against you. But make it your greatest care that God is with you in everything you do. Have a good conscience, and God will defend you securely. No one can hurt you if God wishes to help you. If you know how to suffer in silence, you will surely receive God's help, since he knows the best time and the way to set you free. Resign yourself to him, for God helps you and frees you from all confusion. It is often good for us and helps us to remain humble if others know our weaknesses and confront us with them. When a man humbles himself for his faults, he more easily pleases others and mollifies those he has angered. God protects and frees a humble man, He loves and consoles a humble man. He favors a humble man. He showers him with grace then, after his suffering. God raises him up to glory. He reveals his secrets to a humble man, and in his kindness, invitingly draws that man to himself. When a humble man is brought to confusion, he experiences peace Because he stands firm in God and not in this world. Do not think that you have made any progress unless you feel that you were the lowest of all men. Above all things, keep peace within yourself. Then you will be able to create peace among others. It is better to be peaceful than to be learned. The passionate man often thinks evil of a good man and easily believes the worst. A good and peaceful man turns all things to good. A man who lives at peace suspects no one, but a man who is tense and agitated by evil is troubled with all kinds of suspicions. He is never at peace with himself, nor does he permit others to be at peace. He often speaks when he should be silent and fails to say what would be truly useful. He is well aware of the obligations of others, but neglects his own. So be zealous first of all with yourself, and then you will be more justified in expressing zeal for your neighbor. You are good at excusing and justifying your own deeds, and yet you will not listen to the excuses of others. It would be more just to accuse yourself and to excuse your brother. If you wish others to put up with you, first put up with them. That reading comes from The Imitation of Christ uh, by Thomas Akempis. This is a book that we have uh, right next to our, our dinner table. And uh, and from time to time, we'll pull out, and we'll, the really short chapters, we'll pull it out and we'll read through a chapter. And this, to me, just exemplified what we were discussing with Joe Heschmeyer about who St. Joseph was, that quiet uh, but, but unshakably peaceful man who heard the voice of God and knew the voice of God. That's the big thing with St. Joseph. And, and, and if for me, if I can get that this year, I will feel uh, like I've made some good success. To, to recognize the voice of God, to hear the voice of God, and to be at peace no matter what the situation is. We're invited this year uh, to take some time to explore the life of St. Joseph and to look at our own lives and say, Heavenly Father, make me the father, for those of us who are fathers, make, us, make me the father that St. Joseph was to Jesus. Help us to mirror you in our fatherhood. Help us to have that calm assurance. Help us to trust, even though we don't see the end, Help us to trust and to obey in that moment. This is my prayer for myself. It's my prayer for you as we journey together through this year of Saint Joseph. But let's not journey alone. Uh, why don't you come over and let's have a conversation, an ongoing conversation over on social media. Uh, go to facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle is at Outside the Walls. And what I would love to know is what you hope for out of this year of St. Joseph. So find me there over on social media uh, and give it the hashtag, hashtag year of St. Joe, S-T-J-O-E. Hashtag year of St. Joe. Let me know what your hopes, what your prayer requests, what your plans are for this year of St. Joseph. While you're there, uh, the first post that you're going to see there with that hashtag is going to be the um, the exhortation that Pope Francis put out. I encourage you to start there, read through it, and see what he invites us, how Pope Francis invites us into this year, the things that he sees that he wants to draw to our attention. It's a great starting place, uh, both for this year, but also for our discussion there uh, with the hashtag year of St. Joe. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, Today's show is brought to you by Phil and Tina Parker and all of those who support the show through Patreon. I encourage you to consider becoming a patron yourself, getting access to all the extra content. Learn more by going to OutsideTheWalls.com, clicking that Patreon link in the top right-hand corner. Until next week, let nothing disturb you. Let nothing affright you. All things are passing. God is unchanging. Patience obtains all things, who has God lacks nothing, God alone suffices.